I just uh, think it's incredible how fast the seasons can change here in Minnesota. I was looking out my office uh, this week as I was uh, studying, and literally like two weeks ago, I had a snowbank outside of my windows. I couldn't even see out my windows because of the, the snowbank that had been plowed up against uh, the front of the church. And if you think about it, just three weeks ago, it was three weeks ago, we had to cancel our, one of our two morning services because of the snowstorm. And, uh, and now here we are, those 20-foot-tall snowbanks around the parking lot are all gone, and, and we're looking forward to summertime. But as I was thinking about uh, the reality of the change of the seasons and the melting snow this week, I started reflecting on just uh, how incredible, how amazing snow is. If you could go back to that first slide, please. Uh, when you think about snow, I mean, it's truly uh, an incredible wonder of God's creation. Uh, snowflakes are, are just truly marvelous, miraculous things. Snowflakes begin as a tiny speck of dust traveling through the Earth's atmosphere. And as that little speck of dust begins to accumulate uh, crystals from the water vapor it's flowing through, uh, pretty soon those crystals begin to condense around this flake of dust, this tiny speck of dust, creating these beautiful geometric patterns. I mean, isn't that just absolutely incredible? Every single snowflake has six sides to it, six sides, and they almost have perfect geometrical symmetry. Not quite, but almost perfect these crystalline features that are formed. And every single snowflake is unique. There's not a, any two snowflakes that are the same. They're truly uh, just a miraculous wonder of God's creation. But snowflakes are also one of the most fragile things in God's creation. You know, on their own, snowflakes can be quickly destroyed and diminished. They, they can easily break apart or melt. But when you put a bunch of snowflakes together... There's tremendous power in that, right? And we see that when we have these snowstorms that come. Uh, you can go to the next slide, if you will. A single snowflake on its own doesn't have much power. But you put a bunch of them together, and pretty soon you end up with a big, giant mess. And friends, this is a great illustration of how there is tremendous power in unity. And I thought about that this week because the passage that we're going to be looking at today is all about the power that exists in the unity of the church, of God's people, through the Holy Spirit at work within us. When the Holy Spirit empowers each of us as, as followers of Christ, we in our unique abilities, our unique personalities, our unique, our unique talents, our spiritual gifts, all of those things come together in a collective whole with incredible power to truly transform the world. And that's what we see taking place in the gospel revolution that we're looking at here in the book of Acts. We're seeing this group, a collective group of individuals empowered by God's Spirit coming together in radical unity, creating this powerful community that would literally go on and transform the world. And so this morning we're going to look at the, the radical unity that was taking place in the early church. And my prayer for this morning is that as we look at this passage uh, in Acts chapters 4 and 5, that we too would be inspired as a church with, with a collective vision for what is possible when God's people come together, empowered by the Spirit, united in, in, in uh, a common cause and mission uh, for the sake of the gospel. 
So this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32 through 511. It's a shorter passage. We've come out of those real long chunks of passages now. We're going to be looking at a shorter passage of Scripture. And in today's passage, we're going to see one of the great heroes of the faith in the New Testament. But we're also going to be see, uh, discover two of the most notorious figures uh, in the early church. So let's take a look at our passage together. Uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. What an interesting story. We see this incredible depiction of just this radical unity and radical generosity in God's church. But we also see the reality of the enemy's work, sowing seeds of discord, trying to create disunity and dissension in this early gospel revolution that had begun in the Holy Spirit-inspired Church of God. Well, this morning I want to look at this passage and I want to talk about this, this radical unity that we see here uh, in Acts 4 and 5. This terrific model that we have uh, that God calls us to as his people, as the church. And uh, we're going to look at four points in our passage this morning. And the first of these four points that we're going to see is that in the early church, there was a radical unity created by the gospel. What was the foundation of this radical unity we just read about? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice here in verse 32, 
Our passage starts out by telling us, Luke tells us that the whole church was of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. They were united. And it was the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, the hope of the world that that had united these people in this way. And the Holy Spirit that had inspired them, that had come and lived within them when they chose to put their trust in Jesus. Now this, this phrase here, united in one heart and soul, this is, a, this is a very interesting phrase because historians tell us that this phrase isn't found in any known pagan Greek literature. This phrase wasn't used in the Greco-Roman world. People weren't known in the Greco-Roman world to be united in heart and soul with, with this kind of radical unity that we see here. This is the first time in all the writings of antiquity that we have this statement. And and we shouldn't be surprised by this because we know from history that that friendship in the Greco-Roman culture was typically based on reciprocity between social equals. So in other words, you didn't usually associate with somebody who wasn't in the same class category as you. And even then, if you did have a friend that was in the same social standing as you, Those friendships were typically based on reciprocity. In other words, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. They were relationships based on what we could get from one another. And friends, these were radically different kind of relationships than what we see taking place in the early church. In our passage this morning, we find that these early Christians viewed their relationships not in in a reciprocity kind of a way, but in a familial kind of a way. They saw themselves as family. And the reason they saw themselves as family is because that's what the gospel does. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, if you remember in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 12, John tells us, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. And so friends, when you put your trust in Jesus, you become a child of God. And the early church understood that. They understood that they were all sons and daughters of of our Creator God. And as sons and daughters, they were then brothers and sisters. They were united as a spiritual family. And we see them caring for one another like that. Like family. Now this unity that we see here in our passage this morning is, is especially astounding when you consider the fact that most of these people Most of these people had just gotten to know one another. Remember, it was only a few days earlier on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came and fell upon the church. And what did we see a couple weeks ago? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people from all over the world came to faith in Jesus. And now, probably about a week or so later, these 3,000 new believers are united in this radical unity committed to one another, loving one another, serving one another, people from different nations, different languages, different ethnic backgrounds. Friends, what could inspire that kind of a thing? It was only the power of the gospel at work in their hearts and the reality of the Holy Spirit that fueled this. This was a diverse group of people experiencing a unity that can only be described as supernatural. And that's exactly what it was. It was a supernatural unity. God had prophesied this supernatural unity hundreds of years before. 
If you remember what the prophets told of in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, 26, the prophet Ezekiel told us, I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. God had told his people to look forward to this. A new covenant was coming. A new era of grace was coming. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. And we see this taking place in the early church. The prophet Jeremiah, he told us also hundreds of years before the coming of the Holy Spirit, I will give them one heart and one way. In other words, they're going to be united. They're going to have a common spirit, a common heart, a common purpose, one way together. And so, friends, when we see this taking place in the early church, this is exactly what God had promised would happen when his spirit fell upon his people. The famous evangelist John Wesley once described the unity of the early church as a situation where their loves, their hopes, their passions joined. Isn't that a great description? Their loves, their hopes, and their passions joined. Friends, what does this mean? Well, they loved Christ, and so therefore they loved one another. Right? When we love Jesus, that's inevitably going to overflow out of our hearts into love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, Jesus prayed on the night of his, crucif- on the night of his arrest, Lord, make them uni- give them unity, unite them as one, just as you and I are one, Father. And so when we fall in love with Jesus and he transforms our hearts, that then spills out into love and unity for our fellow believers. They not only loved Christ, but they also hoped in Christ's return. Their loves, their hopes, their passions were all united. They hoped in Christ's return, therefore they were not attached to the things of this world. Why were they so generous? Why were they so willing to give things away? It's because they knew this world wasn't their home. This is just a temporary place that we're walking, passing through. Our true home is in heaven. And so I'm going to hold on to my stuff in this life loosely. And if I have a brother or sister in need, I'm going to share it. Because my true hope is in heaven. I'm looking forward to the day the Lord returns. Or when he takes me home. Because that's where my true home is. And they were passionate about the gospel. They were committed to their mission. Friends, that's where this unity comes from again. It comes from a common commitment to the gospel. When we are united in the purpose of taking the good news of salvation to the whole world, friends, that priority just radically changes everything in our lives. It changes our perspective on money. It changes our perspective on time. It changes our perspective on relationships. Everything that is important to us becomes viewed through the lens of the mission. And that's what we see taking place in the early church. These were a people who truly knew what it was to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that played itself out in their relationships with one another. You know, when you see this amazing unity that took place in the early church, I I can't help but think what an incredible model for us as God's church today. You know, we live in a culture today, friends, that is so plagued by disunity, political disunity economic disunity, cultural disunity, racial disunity. There's so much brokenness and infighting and disunity in our culture. Friends, what an amazing opportunity for us as the church to shine, to shine a bright light of hope into our dark world. 
to show the world a place where diverse people from different ethnicities and backgrounds and socioeconomic status can come together in mutual love for one another, united in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is our opportunity. Let us shine brightly the unity that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But friends, we can only do that if we keep our eyes on the gospel. That's what is the basis of all of this. Secondly, in our passage this morning, we see that this radical unity in the early church was conveyed by generosity. How was this radical unity expressed? Well, in our passage today, we see it was expressed by this incredible generosity, this spirit-fueled generosity that was at work in the early church. In our passage this morning, in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that were sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Here we see this radical unity. Now we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, but some people try to read into this passage something that's not there. Okay? There are people who will look at this passage and try to argue that, that the early church was really a great model of some kind of communist or socialist type system. Right? In fact, just this week, I was talking about this passage with our staff on Tuesday morning. And Pastor Stephen told me, he said, hey, I have family members who will read this passage and they will try to tell you that this is promoting some kind of Christian hippie commune here. Okay? Friends, that's not what this is talking about. Okay? The early church and the model that we see here, this was not communism. Okay? How do we know that? First of all, there was private ownership in the early church. Okay? People owned homes. They owned land. They had possessions to sell. Secondly, they were both wealthy and poor believers in the early church. In other words, the church was made up, just like it is today, of an economically diverse group of people. We see both of these things in the New Testament. The sharing taking place was voluntary, not based on compulsion. Okay? It wasn't about a government or a dictator or a force above the church telling them that they needed to redistribute their wealth. They were doing this out of grace and love and generosity. We also see that the distribution of the donated funds was based on need, not equality. Friends, the goal for the early church was not making everybody equal. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to make sure everybody's needs were equally met. See, that's a major difference here. And then lastly, we see that the radical generosity in the early, early church was motivated and inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was only the Holy Spirit transforming hearts that would motivate people to this kind of radical generosity. And friends, this last point, by the way, is why communism has never worked anywhere in the history of the world. Because you cannot force fallen sinful people into this kind of radical generosity. It just doesn't work. This generosity only happens when hearts are changed, when lives are changed, when the Holy Spirit motivates us to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now some people would argue that what we see here in the early church in Jerusalem was, was really an exception. Okay, God didn't expect us to, to live like this you know, forever. This was just a one-time thing happening in the early church. But friends, I would disagree with that view. I don't think this was an exception that we read about here. 
I believe that the reason why Luke spoke so regularly and deliberately about this radical unity in the early church is because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to lift this up as a model for us today, as a model for God's people. And this is God's goal. He wants us to be a people of radical unity like this. And we see evidence of this throughout history. Friends, throughout history, wherever you find Holy Spirit-inspired people coming together in a common cause, a common goal, you're going to find this radical generosity expressing itself. Because that's what the Holy Spirit inevitably does in our hearts. We, we could talk about numerous examples of this. Now, now to, to be fair, we haven't always gotten this right. Okay? The church hasn't always lived out this radical unity and generosity right. But when we do, friends, there's incredible power in it. And we've seen that happen over the last 2,000 years. Take the example of the Roman Empire in the 4th century. Archaeologists have found a letter written by the Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate in the 300s A.D., 300 years after the early church. And we see in this letter evidence that the early church was still, 300 years later, known for their radical generosity. Look what Julian the apostate, he wasn't a Christian, look what he says to his friend. It is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, he called them impious because they didn't worship the Roman gods, When the impious Galileans, the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Friends, what's the emperor saying here? He's saying these Christians are giving us a black eye. They not only take care of their people, but they take care of everyone else's people. And now people are looking at us thinking like, what's our government doing for us? Friends, this radical generosity was what the church was characterized by not only 2,000 years ago, not only 1,700 years ago, but even today we still see this kind of radical generosity at work in God's church. By the way, it was this kind of stuff that led Christianity to transform Western culture. It was this understanding of what the church was as opposed to what people were seeing in the pagan culture around them that motivated so many people to turn to Jesus Christ. Because the world had never seen this kind of radical community and unity and generosity before. It was something powerful. And friends, I truly believe God's Spirit is still moving among His people today in the very same way. When we are being led by the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit, that's inevitably going to pour itself out in radical generosity among God's people. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it in my own life. I I was thinking just this week about over the last three years, my, my wife's cancer battle and how many times this church has come to our family's aid. I remember in those early months when my wife was totally laid up in chemo and radiation, I mean, we had probably hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of gift cards given to us for restaurants and, you know, grocery store trips. We had people bless us with just incredibly generous gifts. We had people offering to care for our kids and help us with transportation. We saw a tangible example of the church coming together in love for one another. I I think of what takes place every week here in our church through our ABFs, our adult Bible fellowship groups. 
Friends, our adult Bible fellowship groups are, are smaller churches within the larger church. And what do these people do every week that meet in our adult Bible fellowship groups? They care for one another. They grow in Christ in community with one another. They support one another. They pray for one another. When people are sick, they bring meals. When, when help with transportation is needed, they provide help with transportation. They visit their friends, their brothers and sisters in the hospital. They care for one another's kids. They help each other with, with housework and yard duties. I mean, this is the radical generosity that's motivated by the Holy Spirit. Nobody forces these people to do this. This isn't a mandatory thing that us pastors make our ABFs group, ABF groups do. People do this because they're motivated by love for one another. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. I, I think of our church's support and commitment to missions. Friends, you might not be aware of this, but we have over a $100,000 annual budget that we just give away to missionaries. $100,000, we just give it to missionaries. Why? Because we believe in the mission God's called them to. And then on top of that, this past Christmas, we took a special Christmas Eve offering. We collected over $10,000. What did we do? We just gave it away to our missionaries. And I would be willing to bet that if we totaled up all the personal giving to missionaries in our church, it would probably add up to easily well over another $100,000. So here we have a church giving away about a quarter of a million dollars every year to missions. Why do we do that? It's because we love our missionaries. We believe in the mission they've been called to. And God doesn't call all of us to go around the world. But you know what? We can support them in love and in our finances and in our prayers. Friends, that's the radical unity that's produced through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. In verse 36 of our passage, we see an example of this radical unity in a man by the name of Joseph, who was given a nickname by the apostles, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas is an incredible figure. He's mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts. He's mentioned another five times in the letters of the apostle Paul. And you want to know something that's neat about Barnabas? Every single time he appears in the Bible, he's always encouraging somebody. He's always blessing somebody. He, he earned this nickname, Son of Encouragement, because he was so known for his graciousness, his generosity, his compassion, his hospitality. He's always blessing people. And here Luke highlights Barnabas as, as an example of this radical generosity. Barnabas sells a field. He brings the money. He lays it at the apostles' feet. He doesn't ask for anything in return. He's not looking for any acclaim or glory. He's simply being obedient to the Lord by loving his brothers and sisters who are in need. He wasn't worried about any earthly reward because he knew that his true treasure awaited him in heaven. You know, Barnabas here reminds me of the, the story my dad used to share with us about the, the little old lady at Willow Creek Church in Chicago who gave a $5,000 gift to World Missions. Back in the mid-1980s, our family was preparing to go to the Philippines on a two-year mission trip. And, and my mom and dad had been working hard to raise the funds, and we were about two weeks away from needing to leave, and we were still $5,000 short. My dad had spoken at Willow Creek uh, a number of times in the early years of that church, and so he called up the pastor, Bill Hybels, and he explained to Bill, hey, we're, we're $5,000 short of our need to go on this mission to the Philippines. Is there any way Willow Creek might get behind us and support our family? 
Well, Willow Creek was a young church, and Bill Heibel said to my dad, we don't even have a missions budget yet. But he said, Ron, you'll never believe what happened this morning. A little old lady, I've never even met her, came into my office this morning, and she gave me a check for $5,000, intending it to go towards world missions. And so Bill Heibel says, Ron, I guess we'll just give it to you. Friends, to this day, we don't know who this lady was. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her. But God used the generosity of this little old lady to sow innumerable seeds of gospel fruit. She was a modern-day Barnabas. See, Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement because of his love for the Lord and how the Holy Spirit motivated him to spend his life blessing others. And friends, let me ask you this morning. If people were to give you a nickname based on your walk with the Lord today, what would your name be? Son of generosity? Daughter of compassion? Son of joy? Daughter of outreach? What a privilege it would be. What an honor it would be to be so characterized by our love for the Lord that when people thought of us, They no longer saw Jason or Mike or Sarah or Debbie, but instead we were first and foremost known for our walk with Jesus. Friends, let that be our goal. Let that be our prayer as God's people. Now thirdly this morning, whenever God's at work in the church, friends, you better believe that the enemy's not happy about it. And so we see here again, Satan trying to attack the gospel revolution early on. Last week, he tried to attack the gospel revolution from outside persecution, and today we see a sad example of how he tries to attack the gospel revolution from within. Here in verses five, uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 5, we encounter this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a piece of property, But they had hatched this plan in their hearts to keep back some of the money for themselves. But they brought the rest of the money to the apostles as if they were giving generously the entire proceeds of the sale. And Peter says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? That you have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, the the names of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias means Yahweh is gracious. Sapphira means beautiful. And how ironic, friends, that these names, the Ananias and Sapphira, reflect the exact opposite of their character. These people, this pair, was anything but gracious and beautiful. Instead, we find in this couple a hypocrisy motivated by greed, greed for fame, greed for fortune, What happened? I think Ananias looked at Barnabas and saw Barnabas and saw the the claim that Barnabas got. He wasn't seeking it, but they saw, man, Luke is praising Barnabas. The early church is praising Barnabas. I want a cool nickname like Barnabas. And so Ananias hatched this plan to gain fame and acclaim in the eyes of his fellow believers while at the same time, holding back some of the proceeds for himself out of his greed. They were the polar opposites of Barnabas. And how did this happen? 
verse 3 tells us. They took their eyes off of the truth and allowed themselves to be filled with Satan's lies. Jesus told us in John 8, that Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies. And Ananias and Sapphira bought into the lies of the enemy and as a result, they themselves became liars. Lying not only to their fellow believers, but to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. Friends, understand this. One of Satan's primary strategies for hindering the gospel revolution is to attack the unity of the church. And how does he do this? He does this by promoting personal deception and secrecy, leading to hypocrisy in our lives. He does this by fostering distrust among brothers and sisters in Christ. He does this by promoting gossip and slander and a lack of graciousness between believers. By causing us to doubt that the church is truly empowered to live differently from the world around us. By telling the world that the church is really no different from them. Friends, do you see why the sin of Ananias and Sapphira here was so serious? It wasn't just a personal heart issue affecting only them. It was a full frontal attack by Satan on the unity of God's church. Satan was trying to destroy the church from within. And this is why God brought judgment against Ananias and Sapphira. They fell dead on the spot. And this leads me to point number four this morning. We see that God's radical unity in the early church was championed by him himself. He himself. God would champion his radical unity. And he did this by making an example of Ananias and Sapphira. Now some people will say, Jason, wasn't God being overly harsh here? I mean, all these guys did was lie and keep a little extra money for themselves. Was it really worthy of death? But friends, please understand this. Why did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? He judged them in such a serious way because he was seeking to protect his church. He was defending the gospel revolution from a cancerous tumor embedding itself into the church in its infancy. But not only that, God was reminding the church that even in this new gospel era of grace, he is still a holy and righteous God. Friends, we're so quick to forget that at times. We're so quick to focus on the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God that we forget that God is still holy and righteous and he hates sin. He cannot tolerate sin. And fortunately for us, Jesus Christ took the penalty of sin upon himself for us. Otherwise, every single one of us would meet the same fate as Ananias and Sapphira. See, friends, the the marvel of this passage, the wonder of this passage is not that God condemned Ananias and Sapphira to death for their sin. It's that he hasn't executed the same judgment on all of us. If he treated us all the same way in light of his holiness, friends, every single one of us would have fallen dead a half hour ago in the middle of worship because we're all a bunch of lying hypocrites. But thanks be to Jesus, God doesn't see us that way. Because the blood of Jesus covers our sins. And God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ because of the cross. That's incredible grace, friends. 
Luke tells us in verse 11 that great fear came upon the whole church as a result of this incident. This wasn't a fear as if they suddenly became afraid of God. It was a fear in the sense of awe and wonder and humility in light of God's absolute holiness and a recognition of the amazing grace that was theirs in Jesus Christ. Friends, do you share that fear of the Lord? You know, when we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we should fall to our knees in repentance over our own sin. We should say to God, Lord, make me a servant like Barnabas and protect me from falling like Ananias. And most of all, this story should lead us to worship our awesome and holy God, praising him for the grace that we have in Jesus. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Friends, we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is amazing grace, and it's amazing grace that brings us unity with God, and it's this amazing grace that brings unity to God's people, the church. What a blessing. What an incredible gift. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the powerful example that we see here in our passage this morning. We thank you for the radical unity that you foster through the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Jesus, we pray that you would continue to create a church here at Lakes Free, a church of people who love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, who share and care for one another out of the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, foster this unity and protect us from the attacks and lies of the enemy that would seek to divide us. God, our, our, power, our, our power for mission is found through your Spirit, alive and, and living in us. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would bear testimony to that by how we love one another, how we treat one another, how we support and care for one another. God, make us a people like Barnabas. Lord, may we never fall into the same lies that led Ananias and Sapphira to, op to oppose your holiness. And most of all, Jesus, we thank you for the amazing grace that we have through you your gift on the cross. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen.